from Australia, broadcasting around the world. Around the world. You're listening to the Mitch Maroney Show. Here's your host, Mitch Maroney. Okay, welcome everybody. Today we've got a good friend of mine, Darren Newton. He heads up Wealth Management West, self-managed super fund specialist, and we're going to discuss all things super today. How are you, Darren? I'm good, mate. How are you? Yeah, I'm not too bad. Not too bad at all. How's super fund world going at the moment with COVID and any other changes that you maybe haven't? Well, superannuation tends to plot along. Self-managed super, I mean, this is where self-managed super becomes really effective because you have control over what is happening. So when stock markets move and things like that, you get to move with them rather than waiting for someone else to move. So for my fund, for example, when the stock market fell at the start of the shutdowns, I just restyled my portfolio so that I bought more of these stocks that are stock standard, everyday stocks that everybody would buy, but they're now at discount prices. So for my self-managed super fund, I haven't really been hit by this situation. Whereas if you're in an industry fund or a retail fund, you've got no control. So that's where self-managed super fund sort of comes into its own in these sort of circumstances. Definitely. And at least having that control and ability to choose your own destiny, I suppose, of having the self-managed super fund can, can definitely be beneficial. In your experience, what do most people use in their self-managed super fund? What investments and strategies and that side of things? Most people would go for either direct to the market, direct to listed shares, or they'll go direct to property, whether it be residential or commercial. Recently, I've seen a lot of precious metal. So opening a Perth Mint account and buying a lot of gold because you think the world is going to be topsy-turvy for a long while and you think gold will be pretty steady. So those at the moment tend to be the main things. You get flashes from your Bitcoins and these exotic investment types, all of which are available to self-managed super funds. That makes sense. And with the world that we're living in at the moment with COVID and all the rest, it does make sense. A lot of people are heading towards precious minerals and that side of things. I have seen and I mean, you briefly just touched on it, but with the rise of cryptocurrency, how have you found that's affected people's super and I suppose their investment strategies with it from your side of things? Cryptocurrency is a high-risk investment. And usually what I found is that those that go for it, they tend to be heavily into it, meaning they put all of their assets into cryptocurrency. And of course, inevitably, it fails because you're only in the one asset and that asset fluctuates in value quite heavily. If you're going to go into cryptocurrency, don't put everything into it. Balance it against with, with your precious metals or the, the share market or something so that you've got two pistons firing at the same time. And if one falls, theoretically, the other one should be rocking along. I've seen crypto done really well and make a lot of money, but I've seen crypto do really, really badly and lose everything. I think that's just good sound advice just in general as well to not put all your eggs in one basket. Obviously, with cryptos, some people have done extremely well out of it and some people have lost a lot. But just in general, putting all your money into one share, for example, is probably not the best financial decision. 
you know, spreading it across different investments, different industries, just diversifying the portfolio, I think is very important. Because if something does happen, for whatever reason in one, hopefully the others will paint it. That's very true. The only other one that tends to come up is direct property because you get a lot of people setting up self-managed super funds because they want to buy a commercial property and then they want to use that as their place of business. There's a different rationale behind it there. But prices in property don't tend to fluctuate as much and they're serving another purpose. They're not just serving to build for your retirement. Mm. They're serving to provide you with a place of business as well. And obviously there are a lot of people that are more comfortable with residential. So it doesn't have the big swings that can happen. Even the commercial side of things, like you said, we're getting a commercial premises. It can potentially be a quite a good strategy holding the wealth within the circle. So your commercial business pays rent to self-managed super fund for the location and it just kind of keeps it in the circle. In my experience, I've found that's one of the most beneficial ways that people have used their self-managed super fund in that respect. Oh. Do you have many that do residential investments in it or more? We have quite a few. It was very popular, say, five years ago, not so much at the moment, but everything goes in cycles, so it'll come back again. Most people would see residential as a very sturdy investment, and particularly with the market being quite low, that's the time to jump into it. People will come back to residential and they'll be using their self-managed super funds to do it as well. Yeah, no, 100%. So people are getting back a bit more into the residential side of things. But I do think, yeah, commercial, if you've got the facilities there and the ability, it can definitely be a good strategy, like we were saying. With the commercial, we like to say that you get to be your own landlord and you're also paying rent towards your future self. Yes. Rather than paying the bank interest, you're paying rent towards your retirement. Yeah, so it's 100%, a and it keeps it in the circle, which is really good, opposed to That's right. leasing it off of a third party and then that rent's just gone or whatever. That is also increasing your super balance. And it is another strategy with getting more money into super. So as you know, we've discussed, so you can put maximum of 25000 as concessional contributions into your super, but if your business is renting from the super fund as well, that can be another way to get essentially more funds into your super to really utilise that lower tax rate and also provision for your retirement. And it also gives you the asset protection as well. So if something happens outside of the super, essentially let's just say the business does fold for whatever reason, the business doesn't actually own the property. So it's just leasing the property off of the super fund. So the property should be relatively safe in my understanding of it. Correct me if I'm wrong on that one. That's right. It's completely protected from any bankruptcy provisions. So the liquidators can't go after the property because it belongs to the self-managed super fund. Yeah, which is great. One of the downfalls, not the right word, but considerations with it, which we've spoke off of the podcast about previously, which we'll go into a little bit now, is when a member dies, if a substantial amount of the asset portfolio is in the commercial property, which the reality is it probably will be. It may even be the only asset of the self-managed super fund. What's the implications if somebody dies? Well, if you die and they're in accumulation phase, that benefit has to be paid out. 
can't stay in superannuation regardless of where the superannuation is. Then it's a question of how do we pay this money out because we've got this immovable asset. So do we sell the asset? Do we bring in another member who makes a contribution? Do the remaining surviving members make large contributions? It is the big problem with having one massive asset being basically the whole of the entire self-managed super fund. It is a risk. Thankfully, I haven't seen people come undone in that situation, but they need to be aware that it can happen. Yeah, it is an important consideration as well. And I mean, personally, I haven't seen it either, but you know, it is something that you do have to be aware of if something does happen, somebody dies, or another avenue, I suppose, which I did have a client with this, they went in with a third party and bought a commercial property that their joint business operated out of. And the third party and themselves had a falling out and they wanted to withdraw to roll over into their own self-managed super fund themselves, which we'll go through in a sec. But that caused all sorts of issues in the respect that they didn't actually have any real cash or anything. It was purely the commercial property was the whole asset of the self-managed super fund. So in that sort of situation, even hypothetically, because obviously we haven't gone through the client's intricate side of things, but what, what do you reckon would be the normal sort of course of action or the best course of action in that respect? The big problem with those sorts of situations, and it's the same with divorce, is people aren't amicable. It becomes a fight. Everything becomes a fight. And everybody has a different perspective on the situation. And as soon as we take the common sense, rational approach out of it, it's just hard, hard work for everybody and emotion takes over. So us as accountants need to be able to, one, not be emotional about it and try and get our clients back to being unemotional about it and being practical about it. Because the simple fact is, Someone's got to end up owning the property. Who's best positioned to own that property and utilise it for their best purposes? If in reality you don't really want the property, why are you arguing over it? Find out what it's worth, find out the best approach to cash it up and play fair with each other because you're all just going to get on with your lives afterwards. Exactly. And if you don't, you're just going to spend all the money paying lawyers. That's right. And accountants. (laughs) But yeah, if you can sit down like two adults and divvy it up, work out the best strategy, like you said, Darren, it's definitely the cheaper and better option. And that, to be honest, just goes with everything. If you're divorcing and the business assets and personal assets, if you sit down and work it out together, you know, you're not spending insane amount of money on accountants and lawyers and court costs and all of that side of things. And not even just the actual monetary cost, the emotional stress that that causes is a huge issue. So that's an important one. Is there, and I'm not sure on this, is there a, a, I suppose, a document or anything where everybody's amicable, you're going into the self-managed super fund, sort of lay out how you would want it to happen, similar to like a shareholders agreement, or is that not a thing with self-managed? Well, I mean, if we have to sell this property to one of the parties that's involved, then where you can get lawyers to draw up deferred settlement contracts and things like that, put in place all sorts of different agreements that can be put on the table to say, well, this is how this is going to work. This is what the parties agree to. 
and then give it a time period. The issue becomes when everybody wants everything straight away. That's just not the reality of it. When you made the investment at the start, you know you're not going to be able to snap your fingers and sell that asset. doesn't yep. matter what your personal situations are. That's an immovable asset. You've got to be rational about it and say, okay, well, this is going to take a bit of time to sort out. Rather than beat each other up about it, let's put in place an agreement that protects by all parties and follow the agreement. There are plenty of different ways to style it. A lawyer would have to do it. It's the only way it's going to work. Yep, I agree. And especially like we just said, trying to take the emotion out of it is so important. Obviously, you know, you're in the heat of it. It is hard to do that. It's hard to step away. And depending on why it's happened, somebody died, will obviously be different emotions too. You get divorced versus business partner falling out. But ultimately, if you keep a cool head and you work it all out together, it will get sorted. It has to get sorted. That has to happen. It will be the better avenue to go down to make that happen. If you're in a situation where you have a self-managed super fund with residential or commercial property, basically an asset that takes up the entire superannuation fund, put in place an agreement now, something in writing, even if it's not a registered agreement, just something that you both sign to say, look, when this happens, we understand that this is a tough situation. We need to allow each other the surviving people time to deal with this asset. And if you do that when everybody's everybody's alive and it's all good, everybody's a lot better and more agreeing to it. Whereas if you do it once shit hits the fan, it's hard work. It's no different than a shareholder agreement in a sense that we're just preparing for something that may never happen. And we're saying, well, okay, if this happens, then this is what we expect to happen. You know, if someone dies, we expect this to happen. It may yeah. be that various arrangements can be put in place. It really depends on the particular estate planning issues that you have. And on that one as well with, for example, the death, for every listener and everybody out there, it is 100% certain that you will die eventually. So it will come up at some point, whether you are in a self-managed super fund or all the different things. But it is something you do have to consider because... You know, we never know when we're going to die, but guaranteed it's going to happen at some point. So you've got to look at these things as well. And it's really important from an estate planning, like Darren just said, what happens to the money when you do die? And let's go on the assumption that it has been paid out and all the rest. Where does that money go? What happens with it? These are all big questions that you need to think of and then write up in your will or whatever's going on. And they'll make everybody's life easier. On that day, when you are gone, it'll just make everybody's life easier if you've said, this is how I want it to go. People need to bear in mind is that superannuation doesn't automatically default to the estate. The remaining trustees have control. So there are ways of dealing with that. There are also little tricks we can put in place because if you pass away and you don't have a partner, say you're the surviving member of the partner, once that estate then gets paid to the kids, The kids are going to pay some tax. Now, if you know you're unwell, start to pay the kids out before you pass away. Because if you're over 60 and you're in retirement phase and you're paying the kids before you pass away, it doesn't cost them any tax. So just on that one, just for the listener's purpose, before we said accumulation phase and then we've just said the retirement phase, what's the difference and what, I suppose from a practical point of view, happens between the two? Okay, so 
With superannuation, there are a couple of things that we probably should cover off. First of all, superannuation pays a flat 15% tax rate. That's on income earned by those in accumulation phase. By accumulation phase, we essentially mean you're accumulating for your retirement. Once you retire, you then convert that to an income stream, which we generally refer to as a pension, and you start to draw down your superannuation. When you're in retirement phase, the tax rate is zero. And if you're over 60, you don't pay tax on the money you take from superannuation. And is that unlimited or to a limit? There's a minimum that you have to take, but there's no maximum. This is current law. It may change in the future at some point, but yeah. under current law, there's no maximum. You should withdraw the whole lot tax-free once you're over 60, provided you retire. Okay. On the retirement side of things, get in the weeds a little bit, but what's the definition of retired for super fund? Semi-retired have gone a month without going back to work or is there any hard and fast rules? Well, with retirement, there are generally three triggers for retirement. One is obtaining age pension age, which we commonly think of as 65. It'll increase over time. Eventually, it'll get to 67. So, Mitch, you're going to be working till you're 67 as far as... If I'm lucky, it's probably going to be 80 by the time I get there, but yeah. (laughs) But you can retire before that. If you cease employment after 60, you're deemed retired from a superannuation perspective. That doesn't mean to say you get a government pension, but it means you can access your super. If you're between 55 and 60, you can access your super provided you have ceased employment and you're willing to say, I'm never going back to work again. Problem is when you're under 60 and you start to draw down money, you're going to pay tax on it. The money you draw down from super, you're not paying any tax on it. So there's a big change. 60 is the key number. Once you hit 60, a lot of things on the table that we can do. Say to people, once you get to 45, start really seriously thinking about your superannuation because you've only got now 15 years before potentially you can start accessing it. 15 years isn't a long time to really build up a substantial nest egg. Yeah, no, definitely. So with that as well, you said not going back to work, so retiring, not going back to work. What happens if you do? So you retire, you go, yep, I'm intending to retire. Two years later, you get bored, you're at home, whatever, and you decide to go back to work. What happens then? The point will be that on the day you sign that document saying, I have retired or I've ceased employment and I have no intention of going back to work. At that point in time, you've met what we call a condition of release and your benefit becomes unrestricted, non-preserved. Can't then go back. So if you return to work, say someone makes you an amazing offer and says, hey, come work for me and you think it's going to be fun, it doesn't then revert back to being preserved and you can't touch it again. Once it's met the condition of release, it remains available to you. And if on the assumption you're over 60, it remains tax-free? Correct. For many of our listeners, they may be looking at retiring or have retired and maybe want to go do one day, two days a week here, there in the future. So it's good to know that if they do retire and they've got full intent to not work, but you know, at some point later it just happens to happen, they're not going to get penalised for that. No, that's exactly right. Well, they may change careers. You get us accountants, we've been hard done by all our lives, we've worked hard, 
And we suddenly wake up and go, well, I want to go start landscaping or something. Who knows? You may completely change your careers. And if yeah. you're 60 and you cease employment as an accountant and two weeks later start a job as an architect, then you've retired. So technically you can start to access your superannuation. Well, I don't know why you would if you're continuing to work full time. No, but it's good to That's know good. that it's not like you're going to have to repay it or any yeah. other issues that could occur from that situation. The difficulty becomes when you're self-employed because it's hard to prove that you ceased employment. Yes. You're working for yourself. Consult a professional. That's all I can say with that. Yeah. Yeah. And that's on a very case-by-case basis, depending on structures as well. Some are probably easier to prove that it ceased than others. But yeah, definitely. If you're employed, pretty easy to prove whether you were or weren't. But yeah, self-employed, that can get a little bit grey and a little bit interesting. Definitely seek professional advice in that respect. You've been listening to The Mitch Maroney Show. Mitch Maroney Show. Stay tuned for more.